Well, good morning. It's such a joy for me to open the Word of God together with my church family. And as we mentioned on the booth, if you've been around the last couple of weeks, we're in a series that we're calling Naturally Supernatural, The Diary of the Early Church. And uh, two weeks ago, Wes preached on the early church being powered by the Holy Spirit. And then Nate preached last week on persistent in prayer. We seem to be in the peas, so today we're going to look at uh, how the early church dealt with persecution. Before we do that, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of this record of our brothers and sisters that started this whole thing so long ago. God, I pray you just take this out of the history pages and bring it into our life experience today and for this week ahead. Holy Spirit, we welcome you and just welcome you to go where you want us to go right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Dean and I, when we were first married, had the privilege to go to seminary. And uh, the program I was part of was designed to be a three-year program, but I was such a good student, I was able to complete it in four years. Uh, and one of the things that we did between our third year and our fourth year is we were trying to figure out what are we going to do after seminary? Are we going to go be pastors? Or are we going to go into camping ministry? We were praying about that. We are thinking about church planting. Um, and we were also thinking about cross-cultural missions and we had the opportunity to travel for a summer into China, and we lived in Macau, and we're part of a group that was doing a Chinese studies ministry, and, and then traveled into the mainland China, and this was in the, the mid to late 80s, and uh, it was really an eye-opener for us. And I have to say, it, it's embarrassing for me to say, but when I thought about going to China, I thought, well, how optimal is that? They haven't had missionaries for 30 years in China. Here I am, seminary trained. I knew all the answers and none of the questions, right? I'll go in, in impart some pearls of wisdom to the Chinese Christians, you know, and, and particularly church planting. I, I was an expert in church planting, you know. So I thought, well, this is going to be great. Well, we traveled into China, and of course, I was shocked. The first week we went to what they call a the three self church, which was kind of the state regulated church. And, you know, it looked kind of like a worship service in England in the 1930s, to be honest with you, there just wasn't much going on there, but the people that we were traveling with had contacts in what at that time was called the underground church, and we started at really great risk to some of those Christians to have uh, meetings with some of those people, and I remember just being so blown away at their passion and at their commitment and the power that their lives uh, displayed in the midst of an incredibly difficult situation to be a Christian in that time. I remember sitting down with a pastor one time and I wanted to talk about church planting because there was a lot of church planting going on at that time under the radar. And, and I said, you know, what are, what are your qualifications for church planters? I've passed the church planter school. I had one of the highest scores in church planterness. And he said, yeah, usually our church planters come from guys who've been in prison. And I was just blown away. You know? I thought about how silly for me to come to think that I had anything to say to these Christians that were living in such power under such persecution. It was just overwhelmed with their strength and their tenacity of what I saw in the underground church. And I've been changed by that my whole life. I can't read the book of Acts without thinking about those people that I met and those uh, opportunities I had to see what was going on at that time. So there's a passion in me about the book of Acts that's, that started in that moment, and I'm hungry for the book of Acts in our experience. 
I love that the church started this way, but I don't believe it's supposed to end just sort of, you know, milk, toast, warm. I think we're supposed to be passionate like that early church is, and I want my life to see that. So I'm so excited for us to, to look into this series and to be in the midst of this series of, of really what does it mean to be naturally supernatural? One of the components, of course, in the book of Acts is this issue of uh, persecution. We see it throughout the book of Acts. The amazing thing about our early Christian brothers and sisters were they were persecuted, but they were unstoppable in that first century of the, of the Christian church. And, and there's so many things we could look at in the book of Acts. I had to just cut out so much. I just want to look at a few illustrations of that, of that pressure and of that persecution that early church experienced. And yet also see how the church just exploded, starting in Jerusalem and going to Jerusalem and Judea and then out into Samaria and then really the whole Mediterranean region and eventually off into Asia and Spain. And I mean, you just could not stop this church. But one of the things I also see is as we look at some of these illustrations this morning is there was increasing pressure that got put on the church. From day one, the pressure was ratcheted up and ratcheted up and the level of violence against Christians continued to rise. So let's take a look at some of those. We'll start in Acts chapter 4, if you've got your Bible, if you could just dial in. We've got a lot of scripture, but if you can keep up, it's always awesome to look into the Word of God yourself. We'll start in Acts 4, and right at the very beginning of that, it says, And they were speaking to the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple of the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So really, in the very early days, the opening weeks, really, of the church's life, persecution starts out. It says they were greatly annoyed, and they were annoyed for two reasons. One is they kept, they kept bringing up Jesus. The religious leaders, of course, had killed Jesus, and they wanted that thing just to go away, and yet these guys continued to talk about him, so that made them really mad. But what's interesting in the Scripture says the Sadducees were particularly annoyed because they did not believe in resurrection, and the, and the, and the Christians were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. So they were there double two things that was really making their, uh, the religious leaders mad. The Sadducees were persecuting them. They drugged the early leaders off. But that same day, 5,000 people got saved. This is what's such a great paradox in the Word of God in the book of Acts. This incredible persecution is coming down the religious leadership and behind that, you know, the schemes of the devil trying to stop the early church. And yet it just explodes in the midst of that persecution. So things start off there in chapter 4, and then we go a little farther down to 18, and we see things ratcheted up a little farther. They called these men back in and charged them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have, we cannot not speak of what we have seen and heard. When they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. It had been an amazing miracle. So it starts with this threat. They bring them off into prison, and the next morning say to them, look, keep your mouth shut, or else. There's a threat that goes with that. And yet the original disciples, the original leaders, say we must, we are compelled. It burns in us to keep talking about what we've seen and heard in Jesus. You will not shut us up no matter what you say. And of course, the, the ministry continues and things expand. And a little farther in the end of the chapter, look at verse 29. We'll pick up again there. After they were released finally and they you know, threatened them and didn't know what to do, 
And now the Lord, and now the church gets back together and prays and says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. <laughs> Man, if I was that early church and those early Christians, and I was that first group to get thrown into prison, my prayer would be, oh God, deliver me. Let me escape from here. You know, I just want to go to somewhere else. That's not their prayer. Their prayers, they're praying for more boldness in the midst of that initial persecution. And they're saying, it's not about us. God, do more miracles, more signs and wonders. Glorify your name in a greater way. And out of that comes this deep, amazing sense of community, which you read at the end of Acts 4, where they're sharing things together and have one purpose. And God is just doing amazing, powerful things with them. But of course, the religious leaders weren't willing to just let it go at that. We see another level come up in chapter 5 as we turn the page into chapter 5. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. There were lots of signs and wonders going on. Um, and the, the high priest rose up, and there were with him the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. That's a key component, this jealousy part. Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. So we see initially as we go into chapter 5, into verse 18, this amazing miracle is being done. And, and Nate talked about this scripture last week. I'm not going to go into the details of there, but they were, they were put into prison. And there's this miraculous uh, thing that God brings this angel to deliver them. Uh, and yet they did not run away. I mean, if I was the one who was released in the chains and I was out the next morning, again, I'd be gone. I'd be like, oh, whew, thank you, Jesus. I dodged that bullet. The next morning, they're right back in the temple and they're preaching the word of God and people are responding and the kingdom continues to grow. A little farther down in 27 to 29, I pick up the story again, the heat picks up again. They brought them in before the council and the high priest questioned them and said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You've filled this city. That's making them mad. But you're making us look bad was the other part of the thing. You know, you're, you're pinning this on us. We don't want this. We want this thing to go away, this Jesus thing. And yet it continues to grow. When they threaten them again, their response is this. We must obey God rather than men. The early Christians had such an amazing a view of how God was over all of this persecution, saying, look, you know, we get what you're saying, and we understand why you're saying it, but we have to obey God rather than you in this situation. So this just makes a matter, you know. In verse 33, at the end of chapter 5, we pick up the story there. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. So now we've moved, you know, from threats and multiple threats and annoyance it's give, given way now to plan murder, really. They're ready to kill these, uh, these leaders. And God uses a man named Gamaliel to bring some sense into the thing. And yet in verse 40, we still see they've got them back in, and they get called the apostles. They beat them. So again, this is anti's being upped here. We're not just saying, you know, don't do this anymore. Now they're, they're experiencing beatings, Roman-style beating. And they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And when they let them go... Um, so this is a second warning and a response. Again, 
If it was me, it would be like, oh, poor me. Look at me. I'm bruised and banged up and crippled because of this beating. Oh, God, you know, protect me. Watch out over me. You know, isn't it so sad that I had to do this? What's their response? Look at verse 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy for, to suffer for the dishonor of the name. They're going, woohoo! Just like Jesus, we're paying the price. Unbelievable. And every day in the temple courts, from house to house, they did not cease preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Christ. So we've got this amazing persecution getting ratcheted up, and yet they just continue to come back in the power of God and continue to pray for greater boldness and greater power and greater reach for the gospel. Now, chapter 6, things start to change. Of course, that's the story of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. We see in verse 12, um, they grabbed Stephen and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon them and seized him and brought him before the council. Stephen, Stephen was one of the deacons, the early deacons in the church, and he becomes the first martyr uh, in the Christian that we know of in the Christian church. But now we see a new tactic here in chapter 6. The religious leaders are starting to use the crowd as a weapon. So they're starting to stir up the crowd and starting to get the crowd to turn against the Christians and these leaders and starting to use them in terms of, you know, changing that public opinion. It's a public opinion uh, blitz that they do to, to turn the crowds toward Jesus. And, of course, the crowds are against the Christians like they did with Jesus as well. You go through the whole story of Stephen's speech, and in chapter 7, back down in 54, you start to see where this ends with Stephen. Um, now, when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. When they heard these things, they were enraged. I don't know exactly what was going on in this situation, but to me, this rage, this kind of rage, and this kind of grinding of the teeth, the Scripture says, this looks almost like demonic hatred to me. I mean, there's just something going on here that's not... It's out of the ordinary. There's just some kind of rage, some kind of, when he says you resist the Holy Spirit, ah, oh, they just went off the deep end. I think there's something more to that than just is what's in the scripture here, but there's some kind of intense hatred. But what is Stephen's response? Full of the Holy Spirit, he gazes into heaven in the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand. He goes through and talks about this, this vision they see, and, and they cast him out of the city, and they stone him, which is a public execution. Um, as they were stoning him, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, make these people pay for it. They're such rotters. Is that what he said? No. <laughs> He's he, he going, that's not in the scripture. Good. I'm glad. You're listening. That's good. I do that once in a while. I just want to make sure you're listening. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The same thing that Jesus prayed on the cross. As they're stoning him, pummeling him with rocks and killing him with power, in his angry, vindictive, demonic crowd, he's saying, Lord, don't hold this against them. This is the kind of experience that we saw early all through the book of Acts. But now it's not just threats. You know, they're actually killing Christians, and Stephen is the first one killed. We fast forward a little bit into chapter 12, and things continue to get ratcheted up. Saul uh, is a main player in that persecution process, and he gets saved. But in Acts chapter 12, we see things really begin to break out. 12.1 says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So now we've got the governments involved, and this is a big shift by the time you get to chapter 12. 
this persecution moves from kind of a personal thing to the leaders. It moves into a sort of a global and political level. The leaders stir up the, the political leaders and get them involved, and they start to see, well, look at this. That worked out pretty good. I killed one of the leaders, and I'm really a hero with the Jews. This is a political leader, you know, always looking for kind of favor with the crowds, right? Well, that worked pretty good. Let's take Peter and see how that works out too, right? So now we've got a political situation going on where the persecutions ratcheted up right into the, the government levels around the Christians in that situation. And the Christians at this stage from here on out really become pawns in the global situation with the Roman government. Uh, we see that continuing as to get worse as Acts goes along. Originally, Christians were seen as kind of a subset of the Jews, but by this time they had grown and they began to see, look, this is a different thing. This Jesus thing is a different thing. And so the Romans, they said, we can live with the Jews because we've had them for we know their thing. They're not a big threat. But these Christians now, they've got to go. And so there's this separation out, and they start to see the full weight of the persecution come in from the government, from the Roman government toward the Christians. And it just gets worse and worse from there in the rest of the book of Acts. Christians really become pawns politically, again, for Nero and as, as the book of uh, Acts ends. And so this Christian is now done um, on an uh, industrial scale you want to kind of see, you know, against the church. Verse 21 to 24 at the end of that chapter, but I want you to see where this ends in chapter 12 with Herod, who was a very, very powerful religious leader. This is where it ends in 21 to 24. Um, Herod has got a big speech, and he's in front of some people trying to curry some favor. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. The people were shouting, this is the voice of a God, not the voice of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. <laughs> That's just so typical of the Christian church. No matter what the world and the enemy threw against the Christian church, God overcame it and continued to let them minister in power. Even this powerful Herod could not stand up to God's purposes in the kingdom. And, the, and it says this, the, the Christians and the message were multiplied. We see them, of course, now at this stage starting to go out into the Mediterranean region. And just the harder it seems like the enemy put the screws down to the church, the, the more powerful they became. In chapter 8, there's this great scattering of this persecution. And I'm sure as they kicked everybody out of Jerusalem, there must have been this sense like, okay, now we finally got rid of these Christians. They can't have their little club all together in Jerusalem here. They're dispersed into the, into the nations. We won. It would seem like maybe an apparent victory. And yet Christianity even spreads earlier because the scripture tells us everywhere they went, when they were dispersed, they preached the word of God. You know, Stephen goes up into, into Samaria and there's a revival breaks out there. People end up in Rome and a church is planted there most likely. I mean, Everywhere these Christians got chased off to, they just brought the gospel. They brought the power of God. You could not stop these guys. You could not stop the power of God in what was going on, even in the midst of this incredibly uh, evil persecution that continued to get ramped up and continued to get ramped up to the church. That's the story of the book of Acts, and it just gets worse. I don't, we don't have time to do the rest of the book, but I just want to give you a little flavor about what those early Christians, that first generation, were experiencing. And yet God used them in a powerful way. So why am I preaching about this this morning? <laughs> Dina, a great wife, she's always, when I'm preaching, she goes, why are you doing that? It's, it's a good question, you know? Well, a couple of reasons I think this is in the Word of God in this series in the book of Acts is, 
It's in God's Word. It's all through the book of Acts. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. So anything in the Word of God is valuable for us to think about. Um, but I think the other reason is that although things are great now, it may not be so easy for us as Christians here in Canada in the future. When you think about the last 2,000 years of church history, really, you know, the 19th and 20th century and the 21st century for Christians in North America, particularly Canadians, has not really been that difficult in the sense of persecution. We're in a blessed time. When you read church history, this is actually pretty rare, what we've experienced in the last couple hundred years. It's really an anomaly compared to what most of our Christian brothers and sisters have gone through in the centuries before. And I'm not whining about that. I'm grateful for the freedom we have. I love that we can meet here and and there's nobody in the you know, thing here from the government writing down names like we saw in, in China in those years you know, to, to get those people and persecute those people that went to the churches. I love that we're not in that. <coughs> but I just want to remind you, <clears throat> that might not be forever. And I see things that are starting to shift. I'm not one of those guys that's looking for persecution. Don't hear me say, oh man, I can't wait for us to start to be a persecuted church again. No way, I don't want that to take place. I want to see the gospel unfettered and go out into the, continue to go into our city and into our nation. But it could be that things are beginning to change, and I see signs that I see some of the very same things, the strategies that the enemy used in the first century starting to come in into our own society. And I just think it's one of the things soberly that we need to think about as believers, and particularly believers together in a local church. How ready are we for what might be coming? Lord, how ready am I? for persecution that might come. If in my lifetime things don't look like they do now, Lord, am I ready? As a church, if things don't look as easy for us as Oceanside, are we ready for what might be coming? Again, I'm not asking for them. I'm not looking for them. I don't want us to have a persecution, uh, you know, kind of a, an outlook like, oh, everybody's out to get us, because I don't think everybody's out to get us. But I do think things are changing. There are subtle things that are taking place in our society, and I don't think we can be asleep at the switch on this matter as believers, individually or as a church. I think there's some things we need to be getting, to, getting ready for to make us persecution-proof, if you want to say that. And one of those things is to begin to think about those early Christians and how they lived their lives, and how might I start to adjust my own family, my own finances, my own plans, so that I'm ready if that does shift in my lifetime. John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you. This is his early disciples. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And that sounds very strange to us in the Canadian church at the beginning of the 21st century. But Jesus' words are always true and they're for all time. So we need to be aware that if that starts to shift for us, we don't be, we're not surprised by that because Jesus said, They persecuted me. You are my followers. They're going to persecute you as well. 2 Timothy 3.12, later, toward the end of the first century, Paul writes, Indeed, all who de desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And of course, Paul understood that better than most people, because he gave his life for the gospel. So we can't say that this is not for us, even though we're not experiencing it right now. I think we have to be ready and preparing ourselves for that. So as I look at the Word of God, as I think about the book of Acts and this persecution-resistant church that God birthed, what are some of the things, how were they able to pull that off? I mean, this church was persecuted, but it was unstoppable, you know? What are some of the things that they did, that they had set up in their lives and the patterns of their lives and the patterns of their church that make them so effective in the midst of that persecution? Well, a couple of things I see. 
One is, I think, as I look through the book of Acts, they were infected with an urgent message. This word infected is a, you know, a, a emotional word for us right now because of the last couple of years we understand what infection means and what it means to be a carrier, right? And I use that word on purpose, except in a good way. Those Christians were infected with the word of God. Everywhere they went, it oozed out of them. They were carriers, you know? Every, everybody they ran into got what they got, if they wanted it or not. They were infected with the urgency of the word of God. And there was an expectation, I think, in the early church of the soon return of Jesus. I think as we look at the early churches, particularly the first 20 years, I think they figured this thing is game over in, you know, three or four more years. Jesus is going to come back. There was that expectation of Jesus returning. Why did the early church give everything and why was everything in on the table and sharing? Not just because the Holy Spirit was in them. That was certainly part of it. There was community. But I think there was an expectation like, guess what? The time is short and Jesus is coming back and we have so much to do. There was an urgency in them. Of course, toward the end of the first century, they had to come to the terms with, oh, wait a minute, maybe Jesus is not going to come back as quickly as we thought. The book of First and Second Thessalonians, Paul addresses that with the Christians because they were kind of getting bummed out, like, well, maybe we got sold a bill of goods. And Paul explains, no, you didn't. You just don't know that time. And God is gracious and he has a window. And we're part of that window 2,000 years later. Christ has not come back yet. But there was an urgency. You know, how often do we think about the second coming of Christ? You know, it's not something maybe we think about or talk about much in our experience right now. But there was, that was inbred into that early church, that urgency, a sense that we might not have much time. I remember my early days as a Christian in junior high and high school, and the things that I did and how I lived my life, there was such an urgency and such a passion. I mean, I looked like a crazy man on my high school campus. They're like, this guy, is that, that's that idiot Christian. You know, I remember how I lived my life. And I kind of think, why don't I live my life like that now so much as I, you know, as I come into my 60s? Well, there was a passion. I was infected with that. And Lord, I want to get that back. I really am hungry for that kind of urgency that I don't know how long it has. I don't want to be lulled into sleep to think, man, it's been 60 years. Jesus hasn't come back. He, maybe he's never, he's coming back. I don't know when that is, but there, there was an urgency. I think we need to restoke, rekindle in our lives, maybe in the lives of our church and in our, in our communities to say, guess what? This might be shorter than we think it is. <laughs> so how would we live and how would we move together and how would we make decisions together individually and as couples, as families, with our children, in our, in our finances, and how we do things as a church, how we spend our money, all those things have impact when we have that, that sense of Jesus' second returning. So they were infected with an, an urgent message. The other thing that I see throughout the book of Acts is, I think one of the reasons they were so unstoppable was they were flexible in their methods, but they weren't flexible with their message. What I mean by that is they always stayed on the message of the cross. Paul just consistently talks about, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. That's it. I'm not adding a bunch of stuff on the top. They preached the, the message of God. Their message was unchangeable, but their methods were flexible. Think about that when the early church had to move out of Jerusalem. That must have been really a cool time in the early church in Jerusalem. Everybody was together. There's thousands and thousands of people, you know, coming to Christ. The, the original disciples or apostles are leading the church. There's signs and wonders. You know, they're in the temple. Every day people are getting saved. It must have been a really cool thing to be part of that church in Jerusalem. Think about how bummed out they must have been when all that persecution broke out in Acts chapter 8 and they all had to be spread out. All of that good vibes of being together was gone. And yet they changed the world because of that. Because of that, they shifted gears. The church didn't have to be only about Jerusalem. 
they realized that in the midst of probably what was seen as a real um, bummer originally when they had to get split up was, wait a minute, this is actually better. And then, of course, the church moves the center up into Antioch, and there's a new whole other movement that goes around as the missionary journeys of Paul and his crazy guys start to take over the world. That wouldn't have happened if they would have stayed in that warm place, that happy place of where they were. I love the messages that we've been getting through the preaching and prophetic stuff in the church in the last you know, six months is don't, don't wait, don't long for two years ago at Oceanside. <laughs> that, those days are over. What we did then may not work coming into the future. Our message is the same, but our methods might have to shift. And that's what the early church was just, they were able to shift gears without changing the message, but able to shift gears and say, okay, you're doing something new. And that's what we're trying to learn too. Lord, in the middle of the whatever fourth wave we are in COVID, how does this look now? How do we do this? And what's going on for us in the future? But they, they were willing to shift and adopt their methods regardless of what was taking place around them. The other thing that I see is, as I look at the book of Acts in that early church in that first century, I think they were deeply rooted in the sovereignty of God. What do I mean by that? What I mean by the sovereignty of God is that he is over everything. They had a view and an understanding that God is over all things. Their prayer in verse 428 is, do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. There was this great sense, and I think in the early church, of the sovereignty of God. And maybe you've heard me say it before, but it's like umbrellas, you know, like a big, huge golf umbrella over everything. And then smaller umbrellas that have to do with governments and with local churches and, you know, different kinds of magistrates and leaders. But over all that is this huge umbrella, which is the sovereignty of God. I think one of the reasons the early church was so powerful was because they saw that umbrella over everything that was taking place and trusted God in that. Think about how difficult it would have been to be under a Roman government as an early first century Christian. And yet Paul writes, pray for those in, you know, in leadership over us. There was this sense that no matter what they do to us, and later on when they were burning Christians on sticks and you know, lighting up the Colosseum and the craziness at the end of the first century, you know, there's this sense of sovereignty like, God, I don't know why this is breaking loose. It seems like all hell is breaking loose against us. But over this, over all of this is you, God, and you are sovereign and I trust you in this. And I'll do whatever it takes, Lord, to walk what you're calling me to walk out for those martyrs. I think that sense of sovereignty is something we can instill in our lives right now. I think we can start to go deeper in that sense of our understanding of the, the trust and the goodness of God and his purposes for us, for our family, for our church, for history, that we can begin to even let those roots go deeper. I don't think the time to do that is when persecution breaks out. God is gracious. He gives us grace for whatever takes place. I think the time God has given us this amazing window to let our roots go down deep and to strengthen our faith and our, and our experience with the Word of God and our knowledge of the Holy Spirit and our ability to be able to walk in signs and wonders. I think he's given us an amazing window to do that now. It's so much easier to have those things in place when the persecution comes than to, to get hit with like, oh, no, now what do we do? No, we know just exactly what to do because we've been walking in that and living in that and living in power and living in the, in the step of the Holy Spirit. When the persecution comes, it's like, oh, we know what to do here. We've been doing this already. So I just, I'm excited about this window that we have. Some people moan the church, oh, the church is flabby and tired and weak. I don't see the church that way. I see the church, God's given us an amazing opportunity in these I don't know, you figure, you fill in the blank, months, years, decades, I don't know, centuries, I'm not sure, for the Canadian church, to be ready and to be 
letting our roots go deep in that. And that I'm excited about. That's something we can do right now and right today. And I don't know when the persecution comes. Jesus said it is going to come. But regardless whether it's in my lifetime or not, I want to be ready and see that, that depth go into my life. And if we could just pray, and then I'll just hand it back over to the team. Lord, I thank you that you are, you've made us to be unstoppable. It's, it's your presence inside us, Holy Spirit, that makes us unstoppable. God, I just pray for an outbreak right here in this local church family, Lord, uh, of power and of passion and of just setting up priorities, Lord, that, that prepare us for whatever might be coming in the future, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this gracious window of grace you've given us, Lord. Lord, help us to invest well in these, in these, in these times, God. Help us to be ready for what might even be coming in our own lifetimes, Lord. We thank you that you are sovereign. We know that you see the beginning from the end. And Lord, we thank you for the power and the passion and the protection that you give us regardless of whatever comes. But we just declare you are sovereign and you are over all. In Jesus' name.